Welcome to the Dealmaker Show, the number one place for entrepreneurs and dealmakers to learn about leveraging and generating status, frame control, and narrative power to close big deals. Here is your host, investment banker, deal-making expert, and best-selling author of Pitch Anything and Flip the Script, Mr. Oren Claff. Hey guys, welcome to the Dealmaker Show. I'm Oren Claff, and I get a pretty good range of guests here. Uh, a lot of times I have to do a lot of the talking because the guests are caught in the headlights of the Dealmaker Show, Oren Claff, and don't know what to do or say. But this guy right here is a serious business. I'm going to introduce you to Eric Partaker. He was years at McKinsey advising Fortune 50 CEOs. So when you say the words McKinsey, and then you also say the words Fortune 50 CEOs, you have a serious dude. So I'm going to bring Eric on. We're going to find out what marbles are knocking around inside of his head. Eric. Hey, man. Good to see you. Hey, good to see you. So um, very, I want to make people feel good, by the way. Welcome to the show. And we'll do a big introduction because people will get introduced to you here very shortly by the quality of the thoughts in your head. So we can do yeah. massive introductions and then we'll have a lot of brain power come to the table and we can do very minimalist introductions and we get real dudes. But let's make people feel good for a minute. You were at McKinsey. You work with really serious guys. And I think you could say fairly, maybe 70% of the guys you work with had a net worth. If you added up all the money marbles and chalk in their pocket and equity of sort of 30 to $80 million would be my guy, like serious dudes flying around in airplanes. The world is their oyster trying to run big companies, but make us feel good. What problems did these knuckleheads have that are very similar to the problems that we have day to day as uh, block and tackle business guys? Yeah. I mean, so I've done a variety of things, right? I started off as a consultant with McKinsey and company, helped build up Skype before we sold it to eBay. Now work as an investor and advisor with different founder CEOs. And I've seen the full gamut. I've seen companies in the billions help create a billion dollar company and coach advise companies that are all the way down to trying to get a million, you know, in sales. And one of the commonalities I see is that everybody's in this constant quest for work, life, balance, whatever that means. Another issue that I, I see, no matter where you are in that ranking, is that people struggle with productivity basics. People struggle with procrastination. And I'll give you one final one that I see is people struggle with processing stress. Like when we go to the gym, for example, we nobody ever goes to the gym and, and says, can you please point me in the direction of the most comfortable weights? Or can you please show me the workout that's going to stress me the least? Right. Because we get gym from an anti-fragility point of view. We get that stress actually builds strength. You need to seek it. But for some reason, even though we get that physically, it all falls apart mentally or in the field of business. And we think, oh, no, stress is something to be avoided. So, yeah, I see a mixture of those three things, especially work-life balance, productivity issues, not fully embracing anti-fragility, even though you do in other areas of life. And I see it. For the billionaires, I see it. For the nine-figure entrepreneurs, for the seven-figure entrepreneurs. Let me jump in on that quickly and just ask. Eric, agree or disagree? When you have million-dollar on guys trying to get to a million dollars, you're like, oh, my God, we're so fragile. We're, we could go out of business any day of the week. we got to get to that million-dollar threshold. And then you guys have guys running $10 million business, and they're like, oh, my God, we could have our lunch eaten by one change in the Google formula. we got to get to $30 million. And you have $30 million guys going – 
our competition could announce one product and we could be gone six months from now. We got to get to a hundred million dollars. You have a hundred million dollar guys going, if we're not at $250 million, we are fucked. You guys understand me? And then, so, yeah. you know, and then you guys are $250 million and going, we're either buying or selling. We are not standing still. And you guys got a billion dollars going, we could be the next Xerox. And so nobody. And what you're getting at there is, is beautiful too, because no matter where you are, there's always an excuse. There's always a crisis. And there's always this, oh, it's just not the right season right now. I need to get through this and then I'll be the right time to fix a few things and get things all sorted out and more in place. It's, but it's the same shit. It's the same shit no matter where you are. And that's the beauty of the vantage point that I've developed from the highs to the lows is realizing that it's all the same shit, people. We're all going through the same stuff. It's just that you add in zeros. That's it. And I think... Uh, we're talking a little bit about success here, but I think, and I have to go, I like, I watched some of your videos. I have some counterfactual or counterintuitive questions about some of the things you said. That's a problem with putting out videos. You get potentially challenged on them, but that's okay. You'll live. So something that I see is people asking themselves, Hey, why am I not successful? And I think just the number one reason, the reason you aren't successful is you're comparing yourself to somebody who they're not actually successful by your definition. I give you an example. I talked to a guy, you know, last week, you know, who says I make $3 million putting out videos and stuff from my house. Don't have to have an office. I personally make $3 million a year working two hours a day. I go, great. I saw on one of your blogs that you used to be a professional tennis or, you know, quasi professional tennis athlete. So how much are you uh, playing tennis? He goes, oh, I don't have time for that. <laughs> so... <laughs> Wait, you're either working two hours a day and you're super successful making $3 million, having, making yourself an espresso, or you don't have time to do something that you told the world you loved and are passionate about more than anything else. Which is it? Because you don't get to have both. So I think we, you know, the whole thing, hey, if you want to be Brad Pitt, then you also have to be willing to move to Hollywood with no money and work at El Pollo Loco and walk around in a chicken suit. Yeah. Some, which it's, That's why I'm not Brad Pitt, because I have wasn't willing to do that. So I think what are your thoughts on like the, the, the definition of success being flawed, not actually the results? I think a lot of people want the success. Everybody wants the success. Few people want to put the work in required for it. So it's like, See, I don't know. I challenge you. I was going to pull this challenge out later, but you stepped on your own tail. <laughs> I, like, I think, yeah, there are lots of people who won't, this is why I don't do any motivation. Watch all of my videos, all of my things. If, Cause we, you and I deal in a realm where you can make 30 million. If you're not willing to work hard or be motivated or Friday night, something needs to be done when you just have to stay up and finish it. And you don't get to go out and have a beer. If you're not motivated on the basics, then you can't say, I want to be successful at this corporate, I want to have a plane, I want to have a house, I want to fly to Côte d'Azur during the summer. And those things can't come out of your mouth if you also can't show up. So I feel like most of the people I meet can really show up in full and they mm. have a lot of the basics covered. And this is why I wanted to get you on and really move forward. If I make a, if I made a list here, the guys I work with, they're consistent 
They're practical. They can speak in terms of numbers. They know how to read a financial model or a balance sheet. They're dedicated to learning. They're, they're willing to make fast decisions. They're not procrastinators. They know they have to do deep work. They're dedicated. They feel, at least feel like they have the ability to be bold and take risks. They're not a fear-based and they feel like they have a purpose, but still it's not working. And that's where I think and we what's, need Eric. And what's, and, what's, and what's not working for them? So I think they can't get their business tracking to even that five to $8 million mark. And they're just, it's Sisyphus. They're pushing it up, they get it going, and then something happens and the rock comes back down. And certainly they, they have a few unpack them in the Eric or McKinsey way. There is some fatal flaw there, either in the business model and themselves, but they're not confused about what it takes. They're not confused about dedication and purpose and risk and being bold and making fast decisions. And they've been through the, the, those feel 24 year old issues, but you get a guy who's 38 yeah, um, and has worked through a lot of that stuff. He's got a, a Moleskine journal and a fountain pen and has, you know, contemplated the meaning of the moon and the stars and understands that he has to be fully present and take a risk. Where does that guy turn when he can't get it working? See, that's interesting that you say that because I've met tons of people who are 38, um, 43, 51. And <clears throat> yeah, they have all that stuff. They have the fountain pen. God knows whenever I'll buy a fountain pen. But I, I can't remember the last time I wrote with a pen. <laughs> I probably have 50 fountain pens. So <laughs> yeah. come over here. I'm gonna... I, I don't know if they've... I don't know, man. I don't know if they got it so dialed in and everything is so working out so fluidly and smooth. You just rattle off like a list of basically the topics of, I don't know, some of the most popular books like deep right. work and, you know, you know self-help Bible. Yeah. Self yeah. So to assume just because the books are written and we all know the titles that everyone has absorbed them, you know, acquisition of knowledge is one thing. It's like application, totally another. And I just don't see, I meet a lot of those guys and I find out that lo and behold, everyone thinks that they're super productive and they're actually working throughout the course of the day and secretly feeling like they're losing an hour, maybe or two here, or they're working, working on something. They're not fully present. They get home, they can't shut off. They're still thinking through stuff. They're with their wife at dinner and the marriage isn't great because they keep sneaking, sneaking you know, checks on their phone and email at random. Hey, hey Eric, I, I didn't invite you on this podcast to disclose to the whole world my personal business, okay? <laughs> All right. So you know, I think, there's some I think stuff here that's got to be off limits. All right. And, and, and by the way, I still struggle with all this shit yeah. too. I'm the first one in the household to this stuff that I teach. It's not because I got it like all dialed in. It's because I need all this stuff. It's I still struggle with being fully present, right? You know, so, at home, I still, I have to closely monitor myself during the course of the day. I, I literally do it in 25 minute increments to make sure that I'm staying focused, not like jumping into a random email, responding to Slack, answering the phone, doing this or that, because otherwise I'm like hanging on to the back of the train, the day's over. And I'm like, who the hell is driving? So I love this topic. And I told myself, we're not going to do this. There's other things to do, but here we are. I think we have to do it because <laughs> it's hard accountability. That's, I guess that's what I want to talk because the symptoms are accountability. Like happened to me this morning. Like I preach about accountability. I tell people about these things. And this morning, my son 
is he's How a hockey player. He, he's he's seven and he's a hockey player, but he also my wife makes him play piano, which is yeah, you little fucker, you're gonna play piano and be cultured. Okay, once a day. So no, but he enjoys it. So, but you know, he doesn't spend a lot of time at the piano. So he's there in the morning because he has to go to piano today, practicing a little bit, which is two minutes. And I'm on my phone texting Daniel, who you met, about yeah. something you know that we're doing today. Probably the Eric Partaker podcast. Are you gonna be there? Yeah, I'm gonna be there. And meanwhile, my son is you know playing piano for the two minutes a, a week that I'll actually hear him focusing on the piano. So I know better. And then a right cross comes across my face from my wife. My phone gets slapped out of my hands. She points at my son playing the piano. I'm like, oh yeah, of course. I gotta pay attention. So we all have this, and my wife can't come to everybody's house to provide accountability. It, ha it happened to me today. So earlier today, I, I was at my, I got a 16 year old and an eight year old. So I was at the eight year old's judo lesson and which dude, it was not a judo lesson. They were just running around like farm animals. But anyway, yeah. at the lesson, and that was part of the reason why I started to check out. I was like, what the fuck is this? It's not even a judo lesson. And so I pick up my phone and then my wife said, don't do that. If he looks over and sees you on the phone, he's going to be mortified. And it was just like that reflex. And so it happens, it happens to all of us. It happens to all of us. So accountability, how do we, and I think the deeper subject is, here's how I think about this. I, from time to time, meet or see fairly normal people, but they have one really weird thing about them. Yeah. Okay. Like they're just, I don't want to pick on people, but their button shirt is the buttons are misaligned, but they're, they have a job. They provide accounting services. They have kids. They seem perfectly normal. They help with the soccer team, but there's just one really standout thing. And I think to myself, this is a normal dude that is doing something very peculiar that he's not self-aware of. And so what is there in my life? There's got to be something. There's a perfectly normal member of society acting. You know, they're, they're, what can I be thinking I'm perfectly normal and there's this really weird thing about me? Hmm. And so maybe you call that a blind spot. And where can we get our blind – so maybe if we're trying to get to 5 or 8 million – or from 50 to 80 million and we just feel completely jammed up and it's Sisyphusian or whatever the guys at McKinsey would call it. And, and they can't get it going. It feels to me like there will be a blind spot in one of these things that you talk about all the time, decision-making focus, deep work, making fast decisions, being a capable leader. And so how do we know where we think we've got that box checked, but we're really the, the weird guy with something strange going on that we have that body dysmorphic image in the mirror and we hacked our own, we can't yeah. detect our own failing. We would fix it because we're all A types that want it, or largely the guys who want to get to from 30 million to 80 million or A types are not writing poetry at sunset. They're like out trying really hard, but how can we find those blind spots? What I often, so, so two, two big problems that I often see um, people complain about no matter how successful they are. So one is the whole balance. And then the other would be the productivity thing. Again, secretly them not feeling as productive as they'd like to be. What's funny on the balancing is that if they just applied exactly what they do in business to the other areas, right? So like health, home front, they would suddenly feel 
not balanced, but satisfied. Because right, we're not going to, there's no way you're going to balance your week in this equal weighting of I spent just as much time at home as I do on work as I do on health. It's like, it's just imbalanced by design. But at the very least, we could be satisfied. So I think like the balance word is gets people, you know, thinking in the wrong way. The simple thing, I'll tell you the weird thing that, that I do. So I start the day, I think about three, three domains, health, wealth, relationships. At the start, of, and I've come up with a superhero identity in each, right? On the health front, and I, and I even put these into my phone as alarms. And they, they actually go off at the time of the day that I think would most benefit from being powered by this like superhero identity version of me. So at 6.30 a.m., first alarm goes off, it says world fitness champion. Because that's like the mindset I want to use when I step into the gym. And I set a goal daily from the vantage point of that mindset. Okay, if I'm world fitness champion, what can I do in the gym today? And I'll be like, oh, okay, nice. yeah. 800 calories on the stationary bike, no problem. 9 a.m. next alarm goes off, says world's best CEO. And then I think, okay, if oh. I had evidence that I call these champion proofs, these like little one number, of, like the one thing you'd have to do each day to evidence that identity. So I think, okay, what's the one thing that I could do today to evidence that I'm stepping into world's best CEO. And I was like, ah, of course, stay up really fucking late for this podcast uh, because I'm in Portugal. And then the last one for me goes off at 6.30 p.m. See, you screwed up this alarm. <laughs> it goes off at 6.30 p.m. and it says world's best husband and father. And that one for me is just like a prompt. It just prompts the question, how are the world's best husband and father walk to the door right now? Now, the point of all of these things is that if you just, if you define what best looks like in each of those domains, give it a name. And then on a daily basis, get in the habit of saying, if I had evidence, just do one thing, which if I did, would prove I was being that champion version of me. Because we do this in business. We decide what best looks like and we set a goal and a way to prove it. Yeah. So do that daily on those three domains. You're not going to feel necessarily balanced, but you're going to feel a lot more sad. And you might decide, for example, on the home front that what am I going to do to evidence that? And you say, I don't know, I'm going to write a, and I, lo I love you note to my spouse, or I'm not going to look at my phone during my son's piano lesson, whatever it may be. But if you just start collecting those number ones tied to you at your best in each of those areas, that's a weird little thing that I've done for years and that I find helps, you know, people cut from the same cloth. And say, okay, Eric, father of the year again, in the year of our Lord, 2021, is your family there with you in Portugal? Yes. They are. That's going to be a very mad <laughs> podcast guest. Okay. Quick personal question that I think a lot of people are wondering is, is being a uh, husband and father of the year in the same category? Really? Don't those require very different skill sets? Yeah, first of all, I've, I've probably never come close to actually winning that award, even if it was given. <laughs> yeah, this is just all aspiration. So my my family gave me 2020 best, best dad quarantine 2020. There were just a lot of qualifications under best dad. You know, there <laughs> yeah. were other stuff too. Best dad, if you got best dad, you will feel pretty good about yourself because right there's what, two and a half billion other dads. You were but, given like a massive handicap. <laughs> Yeah, it's just so I would say mine probably put me in best dad, but in a cohort of maybe 15 other dads that met all the criteria under my best dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like 
the, the point isn't, you know, that you're, it's not like you're trying to be like perfect and all this stuff. And of course it's different yeah. categories, but it's more, look, if you got, if you don't set yourself a target, then you have no, you know, it's like going into a shooting range blindfolded and being asked to hit the target. You're not going to even come close to it. Okay. I, I just want to pause for people listening and just highlight something here that's going on because when you hear about McKinsey guys or guys who are at Skype on the run-up to really the highest valuation it ever had, or you know, I've had other guys who coach a Formula One drivers for peak performance, and I'm always mining for like that magic thing that none of us knew and like the one thing they have figured out, and it's never <laughs> fucking there. It's always just doesn't exist. A keen insight on the basics but there's some there the magic is the the insight i think the magic to me is how the insight for them what are the basics that really matter because and i'll turn it over to you what well, give you enough time to think of the answer i ask people from stage a lot of time what are your values and then they will read me the bible right <laughs> I'm honest. I'm kind. I don't bang the neighbor's wife. I, I'm polite. Pious. I, I, I'm kind to others. I treat others as they would do unto me. I give back to the community. I only take according to my needs and give according to my wants or whatever it is. And we get this long list of values. I'm like, you're reading me the Bible. What are your values? You can't have all these values. So I think in the same way, the problem is that there are so many best practices and there are so many books and there's so much guidance and there is so much fortune cookie wisdom on Instagram that you could spend all day trying to be the best at all of that stuff. And my, my totally I feel like you guys who have really been through this at the highest level possible have selected a few things, values and performance metrics that are most important that you really dedicate to and also accept imperfection in other areas. But you, totally. you tell me. To I mean, totally. I love the last point because it's 80, 20. That's like, what's the 20% of effort for the 80% result and then be willing to sacrifice the other 20% and move on. And but, um, I'll but, give so, you. So let's stick on that. Cause that's, we hear that you can't turn on Instagram without having some very well-meaning 31-year-old go, so hey, I just discovered, did you know, but did you know the, the Italian mathematician Pareto? Yeah, motherfucker, I, I know him because I, I went, yes, what we know about him. But the 80-20 is either real or it's not real, but it's realistic. But then how do you not spackle with it? How do you actually find out, is that right for me? And then deeply commit to it and then let some of the other fortune cookie wisdom go in business. Yeah. Okay. There's so many things to unpack in what you've said just now. So first of all, with the whole, there, there is no silver bullet. Like there is no like grand and oh, there it is. Just follow that and everything's oh, going to hey, be Hey, thanks, Eric. I've 4,000 people just clicked off yeah. this video. This is like a shitty webinar we're doing here. <laughs> Okay, you can't say shit like that. Okay, you have to be like, at the end, in 20 minutes, I will provide you the silver, one silver bullet 
that will change your life and triple your revenues yeah, overnight. Exactly. And you will be able to afford the dialysis machine for your corgi, for your pet corgi. Five, five minutes before this ends. And you got to, you just, you have to, there's a menu of stuff out there, right? You got to be selective. You got to listen and choose. It is, for me, it's about, and this is just for me. So whatever works for me won't necessarily work for you or for whoever's, you know, listening. But the I, last two people on our webinar are now left. And now yeah. just you and I. I I do, I'll share some very basic things that I do all the time. I do that. I think about health, wealth relationships. Like I said, daily, I think about what does best look like in each of those areas. I give that a name. I choose one thing that I would do could be the tiniest thing in each area to evidence that. And I do have values associated with, you know, each of those domains. But the way I arrived at my values was, for example, I went to my wife and kids one night and I said, Hey, what do you value in me? What What is it about what I do as a husband, father? What do you like about me? What do you value? And there's three things that came up. They're like, you're playful, you're loving, and you laugh a lot. And I'm like, great. If that's what you value in me, those are going to be my values. Playful, loving, full of laughter. Done. I did the same thing in business. I asked my team members, hey, guys, what do you value in me? Ah, we like that you're decisive, inspiring, reliable. I was like, Perfect. Those would be my values. <laughs> and then on the health front, that one, I just asked myself, I was like, okay, if I got to pull a finger out and actually stick with these routines, what do I need to be? And I was like, okay, strong, uh, disciplined, determined. I was like, that's it. So that's been my approach to values. 80-20, when it comes to business, I'll give you one example. Okay. So I was at McKinsey, left McKinsey, helped build up Skype. We had our exit to eBay for a few billion. I was missing Mexican food, having grown up on it in Chicago. So then I built a, what became an award-winning chain of Mexican restaurants in the UK. And I didn't know who, who the fuck knows how to build a chain of Mexican restaurants. I didn't. So I thought through, okay, out of all the factors for a Mexican to, for guest satisfaction, okay, we got the service, we got the food, we got the atmosphere. And I thought, okay, what are the 20% of the factors, 80% of guest satisfaction? Food. Okay, great. Within food, what are the, you know, we have aroma, texture, flavor, appearance, 80-20. What are the 20% of the things there that will drive 80% of, you know, happiness? I was like, it's in the flavor. Went with the flavor and I said, okay, out of all these menu components, I was meeting with the various chefs. I said, what are the 20% of these menu components, which you guys think will impact 80% of the final flavor? And like, oh, it's definitely going to be the salsas, the meat marinades, and the beans. I was like, great. Let me see those recipes. They gave me the recipes. And I said, okay, within these recipes, what are the 20% of the ingredients that will drive 80% of the flavor in these recipes? He just kept doing 80-20 all the way. Next thing we know, we're in Mexico shaking hands with farmers, getting certain ingredients at the quality that we need to produce kind of those 80-20 levels all the way up. And we scoop all the awards for Zagat, number one Mexican restaurant and all that sort of stuff. So that's like a simple example of 80-20 in business. I'll give you one more 80-20 example in life. So at the end of each day, I put in my calendar a W or an L. The W means that I did the best. I feel that I did the best that I could in the context of that day. So that day could have been a flat tire hit by somebody and nothing went to plan, but that I do the best. W or for a win, an L for a learn. 
the simple game I play is no more than six L's in a month because that means it's 80% on average and never two L's in a row. And that's good enough for me. So that's two examples, professional, yeah. personal, 80 yeah. So I think that's awesome. Matter of fact, that was so good. We regained one listener, but there's no chance. There's no chance we're getting a W. No, listen, <laughs> here's the struggle. I, I love that, but there's no moment of the day in which I will ever say, screw it. I'm just going to stop trying. So I have lots of days in which I don't get anywhere close to what I was hoping to achieve. And I'm look, and like you said, Hey, I was a dog chasing a truck and I caught the bumper and I just hung on to it. And then the truck dragged me up the road and catch, catching the truck wasn't as fun as it looked. And the, the day just comes and I'm like, what, what happened to the day? But I couldn't really assign myself an L in by your system. I can assign myself an L by my system. And by the way, no more than 30 L's in a month, but I couldn't assign an L by your system because I am intense and I try hard at everything, but a lot of things I try hard and I still do them wrong or they break or they fail or it doesn't happen. Okay. Just for example, like we're trying to hire a CFO away from a company that I think is just going to be perfect for us. We make the, the best pitch, the best appeal, the strongest offer. And for whatever reason, he stays where he is and doesn't come out here. We, we invested a lot of time. We lost the opportunity. He doesn't come work for the business. L. But I tried. You couldn't try harder. You couldn't get a better pitch. You couldn't have gotten as, nobody could have gotten as close as I did. But we didn't nail it down. So there's never a point where I'm not trying as hard as I can. But maybe I guess in your day, you get to a point where you go, I'm not going to try anymore. I don't know. Like, how do you? Yeah, maybe we're different. Yeah. So there's, yeah, definitely. I, there's days where I, I look back and I go, I didn't try as hard as I can. I let my foot off the gas. I, I got in an unnecessary argument with my wife. I... <clears throat> Grab that donut instead of grabbing the apple. I didn't really need to spend those 17 minutes going through that random fucking LinkedIn feed versus putting 17 more minutes into that proposal. It's stuff like that. And I look back at that and I go, okay, was that me really doing my best? Probably not. Okay, that's an L. A Scottish Highlander following you around. You're weak, Eric. You're weak, man. <laughs> if it's not Scottish, it's crap. <laughs> yeah, you know, when I give those examples, come on, you got to be making some of those same mistakes too. Right? Uh, I don't know. I'm older than you. I'm pretty disappointed. <laughs> I, I realized that we were on the perfection show. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the uh, perfection show. Uh, what I like to do is bring on somebody who's very imperfect to make myself look better. I'd like to <laughs> welcome Eric Partaker to the show. Eric, yeah. um, tell us about your recent losses. No, okay. One of the problems is the way you get to this show is by being successful and you were at Skype in the run-up to a multi-billion dollar M&A transaction. Well, it wasn't really an M, it was just an A. And you were at a very high level consulting group and you worked with very civilized and professionalized companies at the top of their game. But have you ever been under like real stress in, in recent <laughs> memory? Where, not not real stress. Yeah, like not, hey, I was trying to buy a $5 million house, but it didn't pass inspection. Like I already told my wife that we were moving and she got excited about it. I'm so stressed. Oh my God, yeah. When we were starting the restaurant chain. Yeah. Jesus. It was, we would be working from, we'd wake up, 
start working, get to about midnight, close up, get home 1 a.m. And then three days a week, we'd have to wake up at 4.30 a.m. to get to the meat market and buy all the stuff that we needed wholesale. And on those three days, when you've got three and a half hours of sleep, and then you're going into another like 12, 14 hour shift. I remember the first three months doing that. I was like shaking. I thought I was literally, my body was literally going to fall apart. And I remember my business partner calling me once and he's, dude, where are you? And I'm like, I'm, I'm sleeping. <laughs> he's like, yeah, I know. I, I'm in the car. We need to go buy meat. <laughs> and I was so fucking tired. And I said to him, ah, oh, man, maybe we just don't sell meat today. <laughs> we just instantly become a vegetarian restaurant. <laughs> I <was> just uh, <laughs> One day only. Yeah, there's been loads of times and growing up as well. I grew up in a pretty lower middle class family and became middle class eventually. And we were just always building, working on a some kind of project in the home that we were living in. Basically, every home that we lived in was a construction site. So, yeah, it's not about, hey, uh, no, that $5 million house transaction didn't go through. That kind of sucks. When you talk about balance, isn't it really easy for entrepreneurs to say, right now, balance doesn't matter? Because when this is a XY business, then the kids will be provided for everything will be easy and yeah, sometimes that, in life that, you have to be bold you have to be committed you have to be forthright you have to make fast decisions you have to stay late work hard three and a half hours sleep you be be out at the markets and so there's a time for balance but it's not right now yeah so first of all you could again balance is i think gets people thinking the wrong way you you could definitely be satisfied and and you can do that you might not be able to spend as much time as you'd like with your spouse and kids, but you could still be a good, you know, father and, and spouse and not a dickhead, right? With however much time you have. But that whole, ah, uh, now's the, not, I hear that all the time. And there's always, for that type of person, they will always, especially if they say it in that way and kind of the way you just did, that type of person will always have a reason for why they just need to get through this season. And that type of person later will just become never. None of that stuff will ever get done. And they'll be chalking up one of the many of, I don't know, have you seen like top five regrets of the dying? They'll be like ticking them all, all of them. <laughs> yeah. So, why, why didn't I spend more time at the office? I could have actually made it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like those... If you were suddenly gifted five, you're about to die. And somebody says to you, okay, look, I'm going to give you five more minutes. Who the fuck's going to be like, oh my God, I was so worried. I wasn't going to be able to finish that email. I'm going to finish that email now. <laughs> you know, everyone got, you use that five minutes with family or friends. So I have a, I have a couple questions for you. Stress. Have you got some and don't just make it up if you haven't thought it through because we you've already established yourself as having some very high value sophisticated coping mechanisms i love this one with the phone and the the superhero archetype and the timing and then what would that superhero or best in the world be able set for himself as a goal and accomplish at this time of the day for himself if it was a world-class athlete or world superhero so very sophisticated nuanced and layered coping mechanism 
for awesome greatness. So don't just make this up if you don't have a good, as good a mechanism. But stress, coping mechanism for real stress. Okay, major customer says we're going in a different direction. It's irrecoverable. Key employee, the guy who drives all the revenue says starting my own gig bank. I had, so I had a company before the internet and it was just, it was a software company. We were just a bunch of kids. So we all drove sports cars. That's how I would hire people is if they drove a sports car. Uh, I'd walk them out after the interview, look at their car and be like, now that thing's a piece of shit. You can't work here. So the entire parking lot filled with sports cars by that very careful hiring mechanism. And then it was a software company. So we just had laptops and basically fold up tables and the bank eventually that provided the financing for our purchases came to visit, did a site visit and they walked through and they said, yeah, this company can be in Mexico in four hours. It's not a real company. Cause you know, these guys were 65 years old, the audit guys, and they just have never seen a software company. Again, the, 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 the parking lot is full of Corvettes and Ferraris and Porsches. There's folding tables, laptops. This thing can pop smoke in 10 seconds. They're either dealing drugs or preparing to trade crypto in 20 years. And so they shut down our line of credit, which basically closed the business because we needed the million five of float to take orders and ship orders and everything like that, which, which basically shut down the business. Very stressful. So I've been through a number of high stress situation didn't just involve me, involved employees, involved families, involved credibility, involved community, involved my own family looking in like super high stress. And so have you thought about, have you thought about coping mechanisms in those kinds of scenarios? Big time. I've, I, I, I nearly died from a heart attack on a, sorry, on a plane about 10 years ago and they had an emergency land administered nitrates right there on the runway. Really? And, and that was because the 10 years prior, the McKinsey helping scale Skype, building the restaurant chain. Like I said at the beginning, I this stuff that I teach is not because I got it all dialed in and it's perfect. This stuff that I teach is because I fucking need it because the first half of my life was just nuts. And so, yeah, I experienced the, the stress of like almost dying. And then a few years after that, my wife, now we're like, have this amazing marriage, but she was, she said, I'm leaving. I'm taking the, I have one child from a previous relationship and, you know, one with my wife now. And, and she's, I'm, I'm out of here. You're home, but you're not really like present and available. You got till tomorrow to tell me what your changes you're going to make or I'm gone. So I've experienced the stress of like almost losing my wow. marriage. A year ago, the restaurant chain that I built, it's gone. It went under because of the pandemic. The whole thing just slid under because we couldn't survive the zero sales environment for four different lockdowns in the UK. So yeah, I know extreme stress on the health front, on the home. Hey, we're live, just letting you know, other people can see this, that yeah. we're not just on a phone call chatting. <laughs> yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. I know. And, but my point is like, you know, when you ask the question, have you experienced stress? Yeah, a lot of stress. And, and the way I've coped with those situations, the probably the biggest, so with the business stuff, that, that was incredible stress. You're calling in the administrators and filing all the bankruptcy stuff. And that, that was processed by just reaching out to lots of people in my network, talking to People have been through similar situations, trying to get their advice. 
And the health front was just, that, that was processed through just rest. You're just trying to rest a lot more and get through a period of like, okay, my health is restabilized. I'd say like on a day-to-day basis though, the things that I do, I, I often, I don't know, know about you, but for me, when I'm in a shitty mood and super stressed, I find that's like a signal, ah, I need a really good night's sleep. It's almost like the bridge between like despair and hope is just like that night of sleep. Oh, well, clear your, clear your um, calendar for the next hour because I had a sleep problem, like a biological sleep disorder. So I have sleep protocols that you? are okay. 19 layers deep. Yeah. So sleep, we do it on a different day, but if you're not getting enough sleep, you nothing else, like all these things we're talking about, by the way, are preceded by so nothing can work for you of anything we talk about, any coping mechanism, other best, I'm going to be the best dad. I'm going to focus. I'm going to have these layers. I'm going to, you know, try hard, give myself wins and losses and be fully present. None of that matters unless you can dial in your sleep because totally. it's, it's, so that, it's so disruptive. And that's something that I've, because I tend to be quite high strung and, and wanting to be the best and do all this, even though I try to keep it at 80%, I have to, I got... I sleep with a sleep visor. I got like a lavender spray that I use on my pillow. I got this chili pad thing that I have in the mattress, cools the bed down. So like all these things to optimize the sleeping. Oh, wait, wait, are you spray lavender and you have a eye thing? Okay, hang on a second. I might have to <laughs> challenge you on that. <laughs> hang on a second. This is going to take a second. Keep talking. But this is, there you go. This is amazing. This is amazing. We're going to have a, this is not a superhero moment. Let me see if I can get to it. So that is a glucose monitor. Wow. Yeah. So I'm got that for three months to measure the precise impact of my evening meal on the entire night's sleep. And then I have a sleep tracker. So I have a sleep tracker ring. I have a noise thing that captures the noise. Yeah. So I have the aura. I think they capture yeah. the noise I'm breathing. And then yeah. I have the glucose monitor. And then I have a physical therapist who merges all of this data and Excel and looks for anomalies and oh, ways wow. to. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm going to start trying now is just not eating anymore within four hours of going to bed. Cause I've heard that can help. Yeah. You heard that. I don't, I think you can find that the opposite is true for you is that you can have this glucose or you can have this insulin response too early in the morning. And that can yeah. cause too early of a wake up. So what I have is I have a permafix wake up time. So 545, I'm up because of some biological process. So it's not if I go to bed at 11 that I can then sleep to nine or whatever for the full sleep. So that's what we're trying to decipher. But yeah, you can have this big insulin response if you mm. haven't had enough food or the kind of food that you have. But I think I would look into the mythology of don't eat four hours before Right. Sleep. I think that really comes from don't eat at P.F. Chang's spicy chicken yeah. Um, yeah. with fried broccoli and the dessert four hours mm. before going to sleep because then your body has to work super hard. But right. some broccoli, a little bit of chicken breast, some brown rice, a little pea protein powder and a couple of sugar snap peas right before you go to bed, I think will keep will you won't find a big digest process and it could protect you from a big insulin response spike early in the morning when your glucose drops too low. So nice. There's so, a lot to look at there. 
Yeah. So sleep, sleep for me is like a huge stress reliever exercise. Like I'm really stressed out. Sometimes I'll just be like, you know what? I'm just going to go to the gym for an hour and I feel a lot better after that. But go, go even like deeper than that. So for example, I have a mechanism where there was a period of our life where we had more, a larger supply of bills and invoices than we had a supply of money to pay them. (laughs) And so I know uh, that feeling. (laughs) So what I did, and of course I would be going to bed. My wife would say something like, Hey, did you pay the insurance bill this month? (laughs) Like right before I'm going to bed, really? So what I had to do is build these mental, like this mental cage around my head. And then I would just imagine all these bills and invoices and envelopes hitting that cage and bouncing away, which left me this completely protected area, like this air gap. So I air gapped all the bills and invoices from the business and myself off of this cage. And for me, the mechanism worked and it allowed me to. And then I've I've got all these sleep hypnosis tapes. If you haven't tried these, this is not, I'm in finance. Yeah. You know, Eric is from McKinsey. This is, this stuff might sound soft, but it's as real as it gets. So there's, you can text us or email us. There's sleep hypnosis tapes that are amazing. They will knock you out like morphine. It, like those guys, I don't believe in hypnosis. My mom's a clinical psychologist. Yeah. I don't believe like you can walk on stage and make me walk around like a chicken, but this sleep stuff is amazing. I'll send you the ones I like. So between creating that cage, air gapping, all the bills and invoices, and then having these hypnosis tapes, tapes, which you do habituate to over time, like you can't use them forever, is really helped me with some air times in my life that were very stressful. Anything like that in your... When you say the cage thing, it reminds me of... Um, so I I do this... Uh, so I got it from Rollo May. So he's a psychologist from the 1960s. He wrote um, a paper on the art of pausing. And when you're stressed, there's something triggering that, right? So there's some kind of stimulus or trigger event. And so I just focus on trying to create space by pausing between whatever the stimulus is and whatever my normal response is. Because usually when I respond to whatever the, the stressor is, it's going to be a suboptimal emotional like response. And it's not going to be, it's probably not going to help my stress. So when I feel like that tension rise, I've just trained myself to not focus on how to respond, but just to universally, no matter what the stressor is, I just like, same thing as a cage, but maybe it's just create space by just pausing. So I just pause. And then the question, I just have this question that goes in my head, which is, what is the best way to respond to this right now? Or like, how would the best version of you respond to this right now? And I never know what that answer is before asking the question, which is why I got to ask it. But what's funny is that if you just, it's almost like the pausing or the creating space between the stimulus and response is the universal answer. And then it allows you to go into the file cabinet and pull the card for whatever the unique response is. And that's better than just if you just go straight into it. So the best response is, your time is over. We are going to sue you blind. If you think you're getting away with this, you got another thing coming. I wouldn't even live in your own house for the next three months. It's coming down on you like a rain of hell. You have awoken the beast. Is that You mean like the best response like that? Exactly. That's perfect. That That's typically what I do after I've, yeah, but yeah, it's similar to your kind of cage thing, you know, yeah, in a different I way. I like it a lot. I like it a lot. That would really, I'm going to write this down because actually it's those two things together 
I think are very interesting to pause and then what would be the best response? Yeah. yeah. How would, you know, you pause and then how would the best version of me respond to this right now? Yeah. Cause you could be sitting right across from an irate person and there, uh, by the way, too, when you do this, <laughs> it's so powerful. If you're in a negotiation and the other side has lost their shit and, and then yeah. you're just like, they just like maybe blurt it out like that and you just, And then you just respond. It, it's just, it's very disarming, right? So yeah. it, it also you-, you could add, I think another version of this would be pause and then ask yourself, how would the non-drunk version of me yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. respond to this? If I wasn't going to be a raging dickhead right now, how would I respond? <laughs> so we, I worked for a billionaire in Beverly Hills, a guy named Bill Bellsberg, and he had an attorney and they were such good negotiators and mm-hmm. so calm. And they did this pause, looking up, negotiating, and the best version of them always responded. And the lawyer had the entrepreneur on the other side take a swing at him. In no way. A Beverly Hills office, long conference room table, bunch of dudes in suits sitting around talking about a real estate deal. And the guy took a swing at the lawyer. It was just very good to see the. So what happened next? Oh yeah. The meeting was over, (laughs) (laughs) but but they, our our side, I was just an analyst. I was very young. I just didn't know what to say or do and just wide eyed. And they just said, Hey, look, it seems like you guys are very emotional about this topic. Why don't you think about it? We think about it. And if it still makes sense in a week or two, let's come back around and look at the numbers, but we're pretty committed to our you know position. I don't think we can get over a hundred million dollar number on this deal. And we're still $20 million apart. Let's take a pause and see where we're at in a few weeks. Yeah. And you're totally, you're just in the driver's seat with that kind of response. So super, super disarming. And it works amazingly well on the home front for whatever reason, it's shouldn't be this way, but look, let's face it. It's like, we're more apt to kind of, we, some of the things that we say at home, (laughs) at least that I have, you know, I wouldn't dare say to a colleague or to a business associate, but for some reason, like that kind of stuff just slips out at home. And I found it super powerful at home, getting in about to get into an argument with my wife. And again, I just like pause. Okay. What's the best way to respond to this right now? And then same with the kids, kids are acting up and it's so easy to just lose your shit and be like, get the fucking bed. I told you to get to bed, brush your teeth. God damn it. And, and pause. What's the best way to respond to this? And it's just, it's also led me to do things that it made me think actually, how do I motivate the kids and how do I get them to, especially like the, the eight-year-old lately, I was really struggling with trying to get him to do his reading, brush his teeth. And all I did, bought this star chart, put it on the fridge, sat down with him. I said, okay, you're going to choose how many, uh, all these activities that you want to do, you're going to assign a star value to each, basically 120 stars. He gets to do a water park adventure, 80 stars. He goes to get laser tag with his friend. We're going to assign star values to all these different activities. Oh my God, his behavior changed overnight because now it's been like gamified. And he realizes that certain behaviors equal certain stuff that, that it was accessed by being 
repeatedly more and more calm until suddenly like these insights emerged about how better to model and shape his behavior. So a bit of a tension, but it's weird, weird things come out of it. It opens up insights within. Some, sometimes you have to be in the moment because things are timely, especially like in sports and in negotiation, you're not really ever on the clock, but I would think if you're in other professions, a fireman, a policeman, like for example, my son races cars, he's, he's seven, you know, but he'll be out and we'll have qualifying and the qualifying is important. So the times he's doing in practice before qualifying, so he'll come in and really in order to be mid pack, he has to qual. he has to be at a 47 on that, the track he goes to, he needs to be at a 47, 47 and a half second lap. So he'll come in from first practice at 48 and I'll say something helpful like, your karting career is over. I'm not out here to drive around in circles. You want me to tape a goddamn sandwich in the steering wheel? So you have something to do out there? You want a snack? Like what's going on? I need a 47. And then one of the other dads will come over and they'll go, he's seven. <laughs> but, but so I, that is a bit much, I understand. But you, you know what I'm saying? There is, it is time sensitive. It can't, there, there has to be sometimes urgency in life. There is not everything can just be paused and patient and negotiated like a oh, real estate no. deal. What, so when you have to impress people with the urgency of the moment, what mechanisms do you have at your disposal? I, for me personally, uh, I think you feel that intuitively, like you, when it's a crisis situation, when look, we need to, to move quickly. Like you, you scan the room and you could see basically other people's deer frozen in headlights, like just completely clueless, not sure what to do. And they need decisive leadership. They need you to just step up. There's not one way to lead. So it's, you have to adjust for the moment. I don't have any tactic for that other than I think it's like an intuitive sense that perhaps you get better at when you reflect back. So for example, when you're thinking about, well, did I win or learn today in the context of whatever the day was, there may have been a moment like that. And you reflect back and you go, was that the best you know, way to handle it? Or should I have maybe stepped up and a bit bolder rather than... Um... But so just to press on that for a minute, it, there's this, I forgot what the term of art is, but when you have words that sound like what they are, it's called like anatomonopia or something, a word like boom, it sounds like what it is. And so when you get in situations where urgency is required, doesn't your behavior have to transmit sort of the level of stress, the level of dopamine, the level of urgency, not just the language? Because I always feel like there could be a disconnect between my body language and the words I'm saying. This is critical. We have to get this right. If we get this wrong, be a million dollar dent in our system and oh no it's gotta all be yeah it's all it's gotta all be joined up or else it's you're watching like a really bad actor in a film or something it feels weird for me what we're talking about here is more like it would be the equivalent of we have a, a fight or flight response like an emergency response precisely for those moments when pausing is not a good idea it's like about to be hit by a car Pause. What would the best version of me do right now? Boom. Dead. He paused. 
No, that's what I mean about because intuition is on that same level or that same kind of biological mechanism, that ancient part of your brain, which is just, it's just going to tell you what to do in those situations and you just do it. And your body does what it needs to do. Your language does what it needs to do. And it's all without thought, without pausing. So I think those are just, we're just talking about like different things. When I'm talking about the pause, I'm talking about the 99% of the other times yeah. when you probably make things worse for yourself because you didn't pause. I was just, as we're talking, when we were just talking about our boys, I just popped up in my head and I, I haven't figured, and maybe you have an idea here, but I'm trying to, so I have this definition of a professional. So <clears throat> professional versus amateur, I think is, you know, really embracing the difference between those two has a huge impact on like success in life. And the way I define it is that an amateur needs to feel, an amateur believes feeling generates action. So therefore they need to feel to do something in order to act. So let's say for example, somebody wants to write a book and I'm like, how's the book writing going? Ah, not too good, why not? I haven't felt like writing lately. And it's fuck, what does that have to do with it? Whereas an, a professional knows that action generates feeling. And for me, knowing that those two equations are flipped and having that professional versus amateur identity is so powerful because I don't know about you, but it's like in the course of a day, the number of things that I actually feel like doing, I, I don't know, like maybe 40%, 50% if I'm lucky, my day's full of stuff that I don't feel like doing, but I just need to do anyway. How, how do we start training stuff like that into our kids to take action and do something, even if you don't feel like it, because the act of doing will create the feeling, if you get what I mean. What do you yeah. think about that? Yeah, I think it's hard because what happens is everybody who takes their son, six, seven, eight, nine years old racing, they hire a coach. For I did. I'm sorry, all you coaches, but this is pouring money down the fucking drain. Because when you have a seven, six-year-old and they're like, hey, when you're going around that apex, try and pull it in a little bit more. You want to get a harder drive off the corner. And when you're going down the straight, break a little bit later. What they hear is Greek. You might as well be telling them physics. So they're just, they're not loose. They're, their brains aren't well enough to develop for advice. And so six, I, my son's just turning eight. So that's the only experience I have is with a seven-year-old. But the only thing you can do to coach those kids up is they will just copy you. They're ducks. Yeah. They're imprint. Yeah. Whatever you do. We came home one day and my four-year-old was sitting on the couch going, I'm like in every range of his little tiny voice. Yeah, my wife. That was a wake-up call. The kids just imprint. You can't tell them what to do, but you can not only show them, but you are showing them. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. When you were just saying that, you just reminded me of Leo, my my little one. The other day, he's on the sofa and he's going, le fuck. And I'm like, <laughs> what? And he's like, Papa, it means seal in French. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? So that was so good. And I, yeah, and I was thinking that stressful situation you had with your wife, I didn't want to interrupt you where, and not to give you a flashback to tougher times, but at least she didn't come to you and say, Eric, you're fully present. You're kind to me and the kids. <laughs> you're, uh, you help around the house. You cook twice a week. You're a wonderful in, in the bedroom, but I'm leaving you. 
<laughs> that, that's, even, that's even more stressful. But I still need more. <laughs> I still need more, right. That, that would be much more stressful. No, yeah, no, it was pretty, yeah, she didn't have to actually say much because I knew. Okay, but that's, I talked about like that three alarm kind of system that I have. Like it, it didn't come to me all at once. It came in different pieces over the years. But But when she said that, that's what prompted me to, that's when I actually put that last alarm in my phone. I put that world's best husband and father, not that I'm anything close to it, but just because I, I just wanted that trigger at 6.30 p.m. right before I walked to the door. And I wanted to think, how would the world's best husband and father walk to the door right now? And just having that little bit of intentionality, because before I just walked to the door and how was your day? It's fine. How was yours? And the kids want to play. And I just got to finish some emails. And Giselle would want to talk about, I don't know, something <clears throat> bugging her. I'd be like, ah, oh, you know, come on. Why are you complaining about this? Or she'd want some help doing so. Ah, oh, can we wait for the weekend? That would that was honestly like how I was, but it wasn't very good. And And then... I'd walk to the door with that kind of intentionality thing. And then these things all combine. So I'd walk to the door and then one of the boys like, Hey, Papa, can you play with me right now? Pause. What's the best way to respond to this? And then because of that intentionality moments before at the right time of day, because we forget, so I had to cue myself at the right time of day. Then I thought, and then it's the more you practice it, the more you do it, the more it just becomes natural. And suddenly it's like, when those questions came, I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah. So let's go play for a bit. Or Giselle would be like, you know, honey, can you help me? Can you unload this dishwasher for me? And before I'd be like, oh, I don't have time for that. And again, and those words would be like ready to come out of my mouth. But I pause like, oh, what's the best way to respond to this right now? Of course I can help you with that. And it feels so strange and almost like artificial at first, but it's like the habit loop, right? So trigger, behavior, reward. And you start, you're basically swapping in this new, better behavior. And it actually does feel rewarding because the reward is like afterwards, you're like, yeah, I did the right thing. <laughs> so smart. It's so smart and good. The only concern I have is that living with you would be a little bit like talking to your grandma in Italy over the old phone system. <laughs> grandma, how are you? Grandma, I'm fine. Can you hear me? That, you know, like this pause, <laughs> this, this, this delay, you know, like the signal is going to travel around the world. Grandma, are you feeling well? Can hear me? I'm fine. So can you hear me? I'm sorry. Like it's well, unnatural. It is. It, it, yeah, it is like that in the beginning because you do you you do pause, but obviously it. Uh... <laughs> Obviously, you, you you speed up the loop, and it just becomes natural. But that would be hilarious. Grandma, here before we go, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you something cool that I do that you might like. But tell people if they like the things you said, where to get more of your ideas from. Yeah, I so all of this stuff I go into a lot greater depth in my new book, The Three Alarms. It's on Amazon, or if you want, you can get a free digital copy. Just head over to my website at ericpartaker.com. You'll see the three alarms up on the top hand navigation and you can get a, a free digital copy there. But it, the, the book goes into tons of practical tools on the identity front, productivity, anti-fragility, all this stuff. Yeah. Very interesting conversation with you. I would like to highlight that you can be real, you can be authentic, you can be strong and you can be powerful in today's world of YouTube and Instagram without having the loudest voice, without being 
over the top without promising stuff. If you look at Eric, you can pick up his experience, his strength, his capabilities, and he's not that triple A type Instagram trying to get followers. And he has depth and nuance that business people really need. Go ahead and uh, delete yourself from Instagram and find more Eric's in this world to be part of your life. That's my thinking on it. Yeah. I really appreciate you being here. Hey, Daniel's going to run something here just for the people. It's over top, triple A, super loud with cookie, fortune cookie wisdom that I deliver people. But hang around for a minute and uh, we'll just say hello offline. Cool. Sounds good. All All right. right. If you're planning to become a dealmaker at this level, make sure to join the daily dealmaker. We get into one little piece of this daily. And so you're just stacking and stacking these tools and tactics and strategies until they come out of you as naturally as they come out of me and the people that I work with. Add the tips, tools, strategies, tactics a little bit every day. And by the end of a year, you'd be a totally different, new, improved person and a very strong dealmaker. Hey, thanks for listening and be sure to stay tuned for more great content from Oren Claff. If you want to get daily insights and additional assets, go to orenclaff.com slash daily and sign up for a seven-day trial of The Daily Dealmaker. See you next time.